This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. As a New York Times bestselling author and renowned clinical psychologist, Dr. Shafali's work teaches women how to transcend their fears and illusions, break free from societal expectations, and rediscover the person they were always meant to be fully present, conscious, and fulfilled. In this episode, Enneagram expert and life coach Lara Heller talks with Dr. Shafali about her latest book, A Radical Awakening, and how to uncover our inner truth and powers to help heal ourselves and our planet. This episode was recorded during a live online event on August 4th, 2022. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hi, Dr. Shefali. It is Hi. such an honor to be here with you. Thank you. Um, I just finished listening to this incredible book that is read in your voice. Um, If you haven't read this book, um, read it and buy it and give it to all your friends. Um, When I read your book and listened to it, I had this um, vision of um, circles all over the globe of, of groups studying and reading your book. It really is, um, it's revolutionary. Um, as I listen to your book, it's, it's riveting, it's deeply moving, it's challenging. And you named that right at the beginning. Um, it's triggering in a lot of ways. It's written concisely and it's incredibly poetic. There's, you, every chapter starts with poetry, which I love. And um, I felt like every chapter should be a book, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) that just every chapter you wrote should be a book. One of the things that is so profound about this book is it really is um, strongly founded in Buddhist thinking and teaching. And it's, uh, it's so grounded in um, not just in modern psychology, but in our wisdom traditions. And I actually, you know, the Buddhists teach that um, the first tenant of life is that life is suffering. Mm. And they give us an eightfold path to liberate, to liberation. Mm -hmm. And I felt that your book Mm. was that eightfold path, a modern, it wasn't eightfold. It was Mm-hmm. Our life is much more complicated than when the Eightfold Path came to be. Um, but it is a path of liberation. Mm. And I'd like to start, you, you, um, the beginning of your book starts with a love note to your sisters. Mm. And the last few lines, I just want to read them. And I would love to hear you speak to that. You say, so let's begin. We've got this. Let's enter the ocean together. There is a new horizon on the other side. It's called freedom. Mm. So can you speak to this freedom, this path to freedom and liberation in this modern time? Mm. (laughs) So, you know, we come into this world innocent and naive and unconditioned. We certainly come with a temperament and a genetic blueprint that is undeniable. Uh, Every parent of many siblings will say, no, this kid was that and that kid was that. Mm -hmm. So there's this beautiful, unquestionable temperament that we come into the world with. So that's the basic. And then 
you know, we come hoping, I think, if I could project onto that infant, to be met, validated, understood, seen for who it is we are, as we are, in our being, in our presence. But tragically, you know, we haven't even left the womb and our traditions are decided for us, the God we have to believe in, our last name, our family values, how to be a girl, how to be a boy, how to be pretty, beautiful, successful, and happy. So, you know, day two, and we are already the receivers of heavy projection, conditioning, bias, institutionalization. So this inherent capacity and potential to be free to manifest and embody our immediate and spontaneous essence is dampened, it's marauded, it's abducted right away. And onto us is this influx of a lot of cultural bullshit, but also a heavy dose of our parents' unconscious legacies because they haven't unconditioned themselves. They haven't healed themselves. So onto us, and that's why I do a lot of work on conscious parenting, um, is a lot of unconscious garbage from their childhood that they never looked at. So by the time we're, you know, pre, pre, pre kindergarten, we're just in the, in the toaster, in the oven, burnt and seared and already wretched uh, with all this conditioning of how to be and what to be and, and how to do life. And there begins the end of freedom. So to then radically awaken, right? I called it a radical awakening. To radically awaken, and none of us will do it until we're much older and wiser and pain has shred us to many pieces and the ego is now on the wayside. Where to radically awaken is to uncondition yourself now. So then to deconstruct all the layers of that heavy, you know, metallic, dense, uh, indoctrination that we received and to unpeel, unpeel, unpeel each layer and um, come back to our authentic core. And that is the path to freedom. So this book literally takes you on this journey from your personal historical childhood and its projections onto you to culture's projections onto you and then to the Buddhist uh, arrival at your essential emptiness. So it's this path to your liberation, but you have to read every damn word and it's figuring <laughs> and it's it's going to you know pop all your fantasy bubbles and it's going to kill you so i only recommend it for those who are true seekers and uh brave and i know everyone at cis is exactly that so <laughs> you um it is radical it is um challenging you say to wake up we need to go beyond desire to be happy, motivated, or positive. And that is such a paradigm shift in our culture where there's so much about how to be joyous, how to be happy, take this class that will show you how to get inspired, how to have meaning in life. So what do you mean when you say that you have to go beyond that? Yeah. You know, Western uh, pop psychology is full of, you know, positivity and affirmations and I have nothing against them, but we have to kind of go beyond that to get really deep. Because when you, when you superficially crave for something, you are working and operating from uh, an, a, a place of voidedness. And the corollary of that is to be deeply connected to your present moment, right here, right now. And when you're deeply connected to your right here, right now, you don't need to be joyous. You don't need to be motivated. You don't need to be positive. You just are filled with presence. Presence has imbued in it uh, acceptance, radical acceptance. And when you have radical acceptance in that, you have you know something even more transcendent than joy if that's possible it's just this lightness of being so when you tell people when one tells people you know let's go look for happiness so to speak let's take this class on happiness let's take this class on purpose and meaning what it's missing 
is is connection to the here and now and and meaning purpose uh, eternal abundance and joy will only come from connection to your authentic self which means that you've deconstructed what culture has put on you and you've let go of all those layers so happiness isn't something you get or you attain it is a, a wellspring of a state of being it's it emanates from a deep rooted sense of connection so ah if you tell people you know this class is about how to deconstruct all your cultural layers and to let go of all your conditioning people won't go to that class but if you tell them let's go get skinny and happy they'll be like let's go for that class but that class will not last because happiness is something you can never attain right it's so transient it's meaningless it's superficial who wants to be happy you want to be present you want to be here and now and if you're sad you're sad and if you're angry you're angry and like rumi said you you visit uh, you 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 take visit from all the visitors with homage and you allow all the visitors of your emotions to show up but you don't attach to any of them and so in the same way you don't attach to happiness and you don't look for meaning meaning is in your being state right here right now it's not something you have to become to find yeah i love that in your book when you speak at the end about meaning and that it is not something to go get but it's something to connect with it's already there mm-hmm. it's the loss of our connection to ourselves that throws us into a place where we don't know what we're meant to be doing or what we're right. even doing here right yeah. right i mean we're so off the beaten path we're looking for meaning because we're yeah. thinking we have to become something to then be meaningful yeah. because who we are as we are was never validated as good enough so we are on this quest yeah. for purpose and meaning purpose is to be here right now you i i have so many quotes from your book cuz there's so many things that i just stopped me in my tracks and i would read again and again and take in but one of them is what you speak to now now i see that purpose is not in how things look but in how i look at things mm. so powerful mm-hmm. right it it's so small yet so huge it's everything it's mm-hmm. changing everything mm-hmm. right it's your relationship to your own experience that shapes the experience right so your decision that you are a co-creator and you're going to declare accountability for your co-creation changes the game versus you know a fixing to an an a relationship or an experience out there so that it can feed you right so so women for example sometimes uh or men uh or whoever whatever you identify as can forget uh that they are they are very powerful co-creators in their life and forget that that accountability and and fall into a false sense of victimhood and you know martyrdom about them you know we women especially because we're you know a little lower on the totem pole right we've decided that men are on top and white men are right on top and then the white woman and we have this like little hierarchy so we women uh gain a little bit of uh satisfaction in externalizing our responsibility and our and our blame for our own lives but we women are anyone on that totem pole is part of that co-creation uh now of course some are more oppressed some are more disadvantaged 1000% but we have to take ownership for how we show up in the present moment and you you speak to um accountability you um as the last frontier of really becoming of really becoming an adult and being liberated um one of the things that it for our liberation you know as you described so beautifully at the beginning how when we're born what happens to us and how we constrict we start constricting as we're responding to the world and what the world is wanting from us and what they're projecting on us um there's a lot of pain there's a lot of undigested pain to get to that point of 
liberation, that point of um, being able to find that joy, right? There are layers and layers. What What is that path for digesting the pain that is in our history, is in our experience, to be able to actually meet this present moment? Yeah, I mean, part of digestion is integration and then elimination, right? You have to let it go too. Mm-hmm. So um, we have to understand the patterns caused by that trauma, by that pain. We have to have compassion for those who cause that to us, with us, and all the ways that we participate, because now we're adults. And so we participate and carry the legacy of that pain into our present moments, into our future generations. So we have to own it, see it, heal it, grow from it, and release it. And all those stages takes courage uh, because it's so much easier to just stay passive and stay defined by that pain. You know, pain is not a fixed entity. You know, the past is not a fixed entity. Each person will recollect it differently. However, it did occur. You cannot, you know, for example, if it was a a racist incident or a rape incident, sexual abuse incident in your past, Uh, while the past is malleable in your memory, it still did occur. So we have to honor and pay homage to the fact that it did occur. But now what? Now that we're adults, now what? Right? Now comes our accountability for our own perpetuation of that pain. How do I want to continue the legacy of this pain in my life? Do I want to be defined by it? Do I want to be passive in my dependency on it and be a victim of it? Or can I reintegrate, reimagine, rebirth a new sense of self in the now, right? But the first part of the healing is to acknowledge and to own that that was part of our narrative and it got us here. And therefore it is in its painful way, an ode to who we are right now. So we can't say, I wish it never happened because without that big incident or many incidents, we would not be the character we are today. So we want the character we are today, but we don't want that pain, right? But pain is part of every human's life, some to a greater degree, some to a less, but it's all subjective. And if we can honor that this pain was part of my very unique narrative and I am going to celebrate it and I'm going to own it and I'm going to now reimagine it because I won't be held in its clutches forever. And that is the personal accountability and the choice we get to make in the moment, yet having compassion for the tremendous influence of its pain. Yeah, you, um, you say at one point, you talk about hitting rock bottom. And at some point you say that in your practice, you often wait for people to hit that point, not as a voyeuristic activity, but just because you know that that's the point that some shift can happen. What what is that that shift that begin? And I ask you this because we our culture really <clears throat> is allergic to pain, mm-hmm. and we don't want to sit in the pain. So we're always distracting ourselves. We're moving away from it. We're trying to figure out how to make the pain go away. And you're actually saying something really different. You're saying be in the pain, meet the pain. And that is a turning point. It's a doorway. Right. So we are allergic to pain because it forces us to look in the mirror and reconcile our part in the play. And we don't want to do that. So we project the pain outside, right? We drink, we eat, we gossip, we yell, we scream, we gamble, we run away. But if we are brave, we will understand the role of pain in our life, which is to awaken us to our pattern, which we can now break. But that takes courage. So when we understand the messenger that pain can be and take it for its gifts, then we can begin to transmute the pattern until now and lean into it. Because if we don't, and in its place, create this false panacea, this false salve, this, this addiction. The addiction now takes us down another hurtling path of self-destruction. So it's better to just finish this. You know, I always say, um, 
when I was a young mother, you know, the, the reason I gave up yelling to my kid, yelling at my kid wasn't because I was a loving, pious, wise person, because the cleanup after the yell is like worse. <laughs> Don't you think? You're like, oh my God, now I have to be guilty for 16 days and buy her everything out of my guilt and then eat into the guilt and then like ruin her and now I have to pay for that and she'll cry for 16 hours. It's just better to just zip it, you know, just zip it, just go through that three minutes. And that's what pain is. It's it's difficult in the moment, but just go through it because the cleanup, if you don't, because now you're diabetic, now you're obese, now you're addicted, now you're divorced, now you're, you know, you just had an affair with 10 people and you're like, how did I do that? Because you were running away. So it's just better to go through the pain and see pain as uh, something you have to accept in your life and not resist. So we're always resisting, right? And how do we resist pain with a coping mechanism, which is terribly dysfunctional? Like I said, you do these other things. So rock bottom is the most glorious moment uh, you, you have as a therapist, again, with compassion, because you're like, finally. And what are we saying that has finally occurred? What has finally occurred is that all those defense patterns of false coping don't work anymore. Like you've run out of money. Now you're terminally ill. Now the the 10 men left you, you know, now you're older. So all the things that you were covering up your pain with now don't work. The pain is demanding to be seen. And rock bottom means Mm -hmm. that your ego, your egoic patterns of defense and coping, which are false, have fallen apart and now the person goes I'm ready to look in the mirror and now the real work can begin yeah I I think often of that space as a liminal space where you jumped off the shore into the water and there you are in the water and you don't know where the other shore is you don't know how you're going to get there you don't know what's there but you have to do something and you no longer have the old shore Mm-hmm. And it's a very scary place. You know, there's a lot of um, depression, anxiety that can be in this place because we, the ego is stripped away in, or certain patterns or ways of being who we took ourselves to be or how we were. And now what? How do I do life? I don't know how to do life. Right. And again, it's because we want to do life. But when the ego is stripped apart, there is a a moment in time where we can just be before the next iteration appears. And we have to capture that being state and finally realize, oh, I'm just a being. And without my ego, now I can just be here now. And if you haven't developed a practice of solitude or meditation, yes, that is scary. And most people just regress back into another egoic pattern. That's why People who lose weight go back. People who just become healthy slide back. Why? Because that spaciousness that comes with the dropping of the ego is terrifying. Right? Everyone wants to go to heaven, but when they taste it here, they're like, no, take me back to hell. Because it is terrifying to encounter your inner spaciousness. I mean, it's the most beautiful thing in the world, but you free float there. You know, you're gliding, you're flying, you're soaring. And for those of us who were shamed and denigrated as children, that soaring spaciousness feels very awkward. You're like, I need to be in a corner feeling like shit about myself because that feels familiar, right? Mm -hmm. So this moment um, is often not captured. You know, I often say parents of infants, parents, young parents, that's their moment where the ego begins to drop, but parents are going to the gym and getting a good body back, you know, especially the moms. And they're like running back to work because our culture sets the mom up that way. But there's an opportunity in infancy where you're endlessly breastfeeding, where you're forced to just be present. And most people miss that window again. Mm. You're you're speaking to something and and you you actually just um, mentioned those words alone, solitude. I know um, in my journey of being married and getting divorced, um, and also in conversations with many, many women, being alone is 
not something that we learn how to do. And we mostly feel lonely. I mean, we often feel lonely in relationships too, maybe more lonely actually in the relationship than when we're alone. But there's a real fear. And you speak in your book about fear in a lot of different ways. But there is fear about how to be alone. We don't learn how to do that, how to pause, how to be silent, how to have, how to meditate. That's not part of our culture. What you're speaking to, that spaciousness, we don't learn that that is even a thing. Yeah, we are conditioned to believe noise and doing yeah. and a lot of color and pop and snazz and jazz is the way to be enriched and it's just completely the opposite and alone has become synonymous with lonely but they're two completely different right. things right. you're never really really lonely you bought into and subscribe to this idea of loneliness mm -hmm. there's no such thing as loneliness it's something that you bought into because you have been told that you by yourself are uh, a zero proposition you know instead of being taught like you said mm -hmm that you by yourself are the most amazing treasured connection possible. But like you said, we have not been taught that. So we, when we are by ourselves, because we've been so shamed and demeaned all our lives and punished and scorned by our unconscious culture and parents, that to be by ourselves, it feels like hell because we believed our parents and culture that we are not good enough. So it's understandable that we feel not good enough when we're by ourselves. So it feels not good enough, but it's a lie because we, we were never not good enough. We were always good enough. And that's not a message that we get because our parents don't feel that they're good enough. So right. they can't give us that message. Correct. All, and of it, culture, it, it, all of culture is predicated on us not feeling good enough. Otherwise we wouldn't be buying things and, eating so much and all the sugar and imagine if we felt good enough, that's terrible for the economy. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you have some moments, you just had me laughing out loud. Um, it's sort of coming full back to um, full circle to this inner parent and inner healer where you end your book and um, you talk about adulting and accountability and you have, it's so funny. You say most of us are walking, talking toddlers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What can you say something about that? I just, I, I just the way that we haven't grown up internally and we feel we, we, it's, it's a, it's a real feeling. Right. You know, we look at a toddler and we laugh at his uh, or, or get in despair of his or her uh, emotional lability, dependency, uh, you know, inarticulate, uh, in, inability to control emotions. Oh, we're just the same. We right. just can drink a lot of wine. We can smoke a lot of weed. We can drive in our car and leave. Uh, we can gossip. We can watch Real Housewives. You know, we can, we can just zone out in, in adult ways. And we falsely believe that we are uh, grown up. We're just chronologically older, but spiritually and emotionally very, very primitive, very young. I'm just like a three-year-old, just with a different cover-up. So, you know, you know, you get to know that really well when you are in a long-term relationship. You're like, okay, this person is acting like a two and a half-year-old, and you're acting like a, you know, three-year-old. So, you begin to see that and then you begin to see that when you have children you're like oh my god who's mm -hmm. the who's that real toddler in the in the house right mm -hmm. so it just speaks to not having done the work and what is the work right. the work is to really grow up from within which means take charge of your own inner mood and your own inner happiness and your own inner joy and your own inner feelings and resp be responsible uh because you are your own parent now and you can't keep waiting for mommy or daddy or the therapist to come. They're not coming. Mm. And that is the grown-up moment where you realize mm. no one is coming to rescue you anymore. Mm. So what do you say to women? You know, we, we, li we do live in a very patriarchal culture and world. And um, there are a lot of situations where women are mistreated. and um, 
you do you speak to male and female toxicity, which I haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd love to hear more about that, how we actually co-create each other. We often speak about the patriarchy and how women are treated, but you're actually saying that there's something else going on there that we need to be accountable, both men and women. Yeah, it, there's nothing wrong with the patriarchy. There's only something wrong with its toxic parts. Just like if it was a matriarchy, we would be like, oh, it's a matriarchy. But you know, if it was toxic, there would be a problem. But matriarchies are the same, could be the same as a patriarchy. So people think patriarchies are bad. If they're not, they're not bad. It's the toxic rigidity of any system that becomes bad. So how is the patriarchy of today toxic? It's because only a few white men on top are able to dominate and everyone underneath falls, you know, in order. Um, but we women raise those white men, no? Those white men were raised by mothers. So there's some role we got to take. Uh, we women uh, are not very kind to each other. We are not a sorority. We're not a sisterhood. We are the greatest competitors. You know, we know that when we're getting ready, we are not getting ready for the man. And we're not getting ready for ourselves, even though every woman says, I get ready for myself. It's not true because when no one's at home, we're not even brushing our teeth, you know, if we can help it. I know I'm not. And I know every woman in COVID loved the fact that she didn't even have to wear a bra, leave alone heels. So we're lying to ourselves, right? So we get ready because Mm -hmm. we want to be desired. And we want to outcompete the other women. We know that. We only we know women are looking at us because men are not looking. Men are looking, but they're not really looking mm. at our purses or our you know shade of lipstick. They're looking at something far more primal, you know. So mm. we have it all twisted, and we suffer the most, right? In our competitiveness, mm. in our anti-aging zeal in our desire to be eternally youthful. Who is suffering? We Mm -hmm. are, right? And and we are cruel to each other. We judge each other more than anyone. And each time we do, we subscribe to the toxicity of the patriarchy that we're so upset about, right? But we have to take ownership. Who's buying all the makeup? Who's buying the high heels? You know, every woman knows they're not comfortable, but we're acting like they are. At least we need to say, I wear it because I want to feel sexy and I want you to tell me I'm sexy. Can you tell, you know, we should wear it. Can you tell me I'm sexy? Because that's what we're saying. But we're acting like it's our authentic self to be tottering in high heels. This is where we lie, you know? Mm. So I've begun saying when I wear high heels, I'm terribly uncomfortable. This is ridiculous, but I'm so insecure. I need you to tell me I look beautiful in these heels. That's why I'm doing this, right? So Mm. we're not owning the insecurity. So then we're acting secure. The other woman who is in touch with her insecurity, she goes, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. And so she acts secure. Then her daughter looks at her and goes, this is a load of bullshit. I don't want to wear this nonsense and cover my face and wear a mask and you know do 10,000 things, but everyone's looking so secure. So it must be me who's crazy. Mm-hmm. Let me cover it up. So the mask keeps going on mm-hmm. and we're all in this Emperor's got no clothes charade and nobody is owning up to it, right? So we women need to take ownership for how we're not nice to ourselves. We're not lovely about our bodies. We do not accept our bodies. We are are terribly insecure and judgmental and we blame the men. No, we cannot blame the men for this, you know, and the men, they're suffering too. Because no one understands, for example, the pressures they have to be providers, right? We're like, please, please, Dr. Shafali, right? All the women would be rolling their eyes at me. Please do not tell me my husband is working harder than me, right? And we're so like separatist about it, you know? I'm the first one to complain about men, but I know I'm being separatist. I'm not acting like it's reality. So men and women have a huge abyss, males and females, and I'm just talking strictly biological male, biological female, but you can identify how you like, have a huge abyss between them and they don't understand each other. So, and we women, you know, feel victimized by them, but they are suffering too. 
You know, how many women go up to their men and ask them, you know, are you having enough sex? Are you, are you being pleased enough? Are you being sated? But very quickly, we'll tell the men, I'm not feeling emotionally connected. You never talk. Go read some poetry, right? But we, when the table has to be flipped, we are resistant, right? We were like, no, don't be a baby, right? Just the other day, a client came to me uh, saying that her husband wanted four times the sex that she was giving in a month. She's like five times, six times. He's such a baby, Dr. Shafali. And I said, see, but if you were saying that you're emotionally disconnected from your partner and he's not connected, all of us would take you seriously. So you see, like in very typical ways, we put them down, we emasculate them. We don't understand their worlds. And for sure, they don't understand ours. So, but we, we are not even honest with our sisters. We're all lying to each other, right? We're showing off on Facebook about our amazing children and, you know, lying, 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 because we all want the accolades and we all want the validation. So in these ways, we perpetuate the rigid oppressiveness that surrounds this culture, but we blame the men, but we're participating in it. Mm-hmm. You, you, um, it's very provocative what you're suggesting here. And, and I'm sure this is um, probably triggering for some people. And um, I really appreciate you bringing this out and talking also about the perspective of men and men's sexuality. You speak about the cheater, right? That how we say men, you know, we, we call them, the, you know, if they cheat. And you make a suggestion about um, what would it be like to be able as a man to say, I'm attracted to your friend or I'm attracted to this other woman. And is that, is, is that something that you feel would change the balance? It would help men feel more heard and women more seen? Uh, well, he'll be beheaded, but uh, if he had the courage and the woman had the courage, and we're talking strictly, you know, I, you know, I'm so aware that people are, very uh, sensitive about using male and female and woman and man. So I'm just talking very prototypically and, you know, very simplistically. But of course, there's so many identifications you can identify away. But uh, just strictly speaking, the prototypical male, heterosexual male has been really, and the homosexual male maybe too, I don't know, has been uh, labeled, if he's a philanderer, as a cheater. So women suffer that. Right. Women's when you think that your partner has cheated, you automatically don't like that person. You judge that person. You've created an abyss. You suffer. I was cheated on. I was betrayed. You wear the mantle of of despair. What if we began to understand? And I say this for parents with children who say my child lies to me in the same way that no one wants to lie this beautiful essence that's my partner, this beautiful essence that's my child, or even you when we've lied and every human has lied. We don't want to lie. We don't want to be sneaking like a two-year-old into somebody else's sheets and then wearing, zipping up our pants and coming back at night. But to just demean the other person as a cheater without understanding their reality is really not evolved. And we don't have to be evolved. You know, many women are like, F that. I don't want to be evolved. I'm throwing him out of the house. Good for you. You're at that level. Do it. I, in my life, you know, want to cry my tears if that happened to me. But then I want to understand what's going on and what led you to feel so unsafe that you felt you had to lie to me. And how can I help you? And how can I not judge you? I may not want to be with you anymore, but can I understand you? And many, many males, at least those who have a high sexual drive, feel very limited uh, in a very rigid, oppressive, you know, taboo-like environment that our current sexuality is bathed in. And they suffer and they need to have an expression, but we will, women will not allow them to express. How could you say you found my best friend attractive? Because she's just pretty like you, right? We will not allow it. Right. I tell all my male clients, you know, wear your 
your shades to the beach. You know, why would you like not cover your eyes? And then your wife is looking at your eyeballs. Wear your shades and enjoy your view. But we, you know, we look at it as so demeaning to us. We're beautiful. Aren't we beautiful? Like I find women beautiful and I'm straight. So I don't know. We have this very purest like morality about us because sex is so tab- tabooified and uh, in the mm-hmm. closet. And we're just not okay with appreciation of our naked beauty. And men suffer because they're going to look, you know, they're highly visually stimulated as, as beings, as biological genetic beings. You know, they are primarily more the, the hunters and the providers. And so their visual stimulation is on. And then when we, you know, when, when they save us from the, the praying mantis or the, you know, the sore, the eagle that's about to snatch our nose, we're like, wow, you have such good eyesight and coordination. But when those eyes look at any other female form that's not ours, God forbid, then we persecute them. I mean, it's just so silly. But I understand females because we've been conditioned that once they get married, you know, you put that ring, that's it. It's the end of all appreciation of any other female form. And you must only have eyes for me because now I control you. You know, so I talk about marriage as an institution and yeah. ideas of love and yeah, very yeah, provocative. You, yes, yes, very provocative. And um, you speak about um, marriage or the contract as a life sentence, as a way that it could be a life sentence. Well, it is a life sentence. You, you and I are both divorced. When we broke the life sentence, everyone looked at us like we were broken, like we had failed. You know. I remember a woman came to me who was not in a good marriage, good marriage, whatever that is. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear you've been divorced. I'm like, who are you sorry for? So I turned my back, my head. But I was, no, really, I was like, she's sorry for me? No divorced woman is ever sorry. Mm-hmm. Like what, what, when we make the decision and we cross to the other side, there's no sorry. But mm-hmm. culture projects that because a good marriage is one that is defined by longevity. Not by growth, not by matching, not by attunement, not by evolution, not by curiosity and adventure. It is defined by longevity. Doesn't matter if you both never see each other. I have I know people right at this moment living in different apartments, different cities, different bedrooms, but they're married. Right. So to each his own, to each their own. But uh, let's not project that those who quote-unquote break the contract are in any way lesser than or failures or broken yeah I what what would you um what would you consider a mature love a mature relationship how would you define that I think there's um it's much more about spiritual development about I know for myself spending all that time and learning how to be alone I no longer need someone to complete me or need something from someone else I just it's more what would enhance my life how do I want to be met so I'm wondering how would you for anyone who's listening as they're trying to discern are they in a mature love is this love can it evolve this relationship what, what would be the signs for, this is a good relationship. It's moving in a direction of liberation. It's on the eightfold path. Well, the first awareness you have as you awaken is that life is lived in the moment and you no longer need a, a contract. You don't no longer need a, um, a validation by community. You no longer need a, a life sentence, you know, and a promise. <laughs> you give up the promise. You're like, I don't need a promise. But you only get to this wisdom when you've been through the attachments and you realize that those attachments didn't make me happier, more joyous or more abundant. They bogged me down. They were claustrophobic and I lost my authenticity. Once every institution robs you of your authenticity because you are um, sacrificing your inner knowing to belong to the institution and follow its prescriptions. All religions are institutions. Marriage is an institution. Uh, The way we work is an institution. The way we are educated are all institutions, right? 
Uh, we don't see marriage and love as an institution, but it is. Sex, sex is an institution here, right? And, and there are taboos and there are rules. And if you don't follow, you know, you will be ostracized. So um, a mature love understands that it's only right here, right now. A mature love understands that the inner landscape must be tended and bloomed by the self. And the others can come and, you know, sprinkle a little water once in a while and, and turn us toward the sun if we forget where the direction is, but they are not here to complete us. There's no such thing as completion anyway, only constant evolution. So mature love has wisdom to understand that we are mirrors of each other and we are, we are you know, here as allies of our growth and we can move in and out of life with fluidity and maybe out of each other's lives and come back and move again and mute and transmute and press mute. And so it, it's not one for all and uh, one this way or one that way. It's not either or. It's very fluid. Mature love is very fluid. It's very much about adding value, right? Growth. And if the person is not adding growth, we really don't need them to, to give us meaning. So uh, we don't identify with that relationship when it's mature. When it's immature and unconscious, uh, it's out of need, desperation, dependency, identification, attachment. You need the other person to be there for you to feel whole. You need the other person to uh, look at you so you feel good. You need the other person to behave in your prescribed way so that you feel in control. Mature love begins to let all that go. Mm. It's beautiful. Um, just I'm, ta- I'm just taking that in, right? If we could all show up in that way in this world, right? In this way where we can account for ourselves and not be reactive. And it's interesting, you know. This I know you use this word um, authenticity at all, a lot. Authentic, the authentic self. And, um, you know, Buddhist teachings, there's no self, right? Um, What can you describe to everyone here? What an authentic self, how do you know you're actually showing up from an authentic self, right? I have clients come to me and say, well, you know, my feelings got really hurt and I got angry and I let them know about it. And I felt like I was being authentic because I was showing my feelings. I was saying my truth. What, what would you say to that in terms of authentic self and more of our reactive self? Yeah, many people mistake their feelings just because they're having feelings and their reactions just because they're having the reaction as authentic. To be really authentic takes a lot of deconstruction because you have to understand for yourself if you are operating out of your ego mask, or you are truly operating out of your inner space, right? The opposite of ego is emptiness. So the authentic self is one that understands that there is nothing they really need to do except be connected here. And they don't get ensnared. When we are ensnared in a reaction, we're not in our authentic self, we are in our little child ego self. We are never, when we are reactive, ever, 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 we should never, ever, ever call that authentic. We need to call, oh, holy fuck, that was my big fat ego self. So people mistake authenticity. I was authentic. I gave her a piece of my mind. No, you were just, you know, vomiting your ego. Authentic self is silent. It's powerful. It's uh, whirring on its own sovereignty. It doesn't need the other. All the rest is ego. All the rest is ego. So authentic self is a liberated self that doesn't get tethered uh, in the present moment. Very hard to achieve. But the only way to achieve it or to, to taste it, right, is to know the difference between that and your ego reactive self. What What is the somatic experience of that authentic self, like the felt sense, just um, for our listeners, it, that 
how do you identify, you discern, especially if you don't, you're not familiar with that and you think you're being authentic because you're speaking what you think is your truth. I think there's a real somatic felt sense to our true nature, our true self when we come from that place. Yeah. So first and foremost, it's not urgent, you know? Mm, it's beautiful. It's not desperate. It's, beautiful. You know? it's like, I need to say it right now, you know? Yeah. That's not your authentic yeah. self because your authentic self is timeless. It's spacious. It's expansive. It doesn't need it done right now. So every time I want to react to my kid and I think it needs to be said right now, I realize that only my anxiety needs to be contained right now, right? So my mm -hmm. ego wants to contain my inner anxiety. But when I'm in my authentic self, I don't have urgency because I'm whole and complete. I'm like, I'll, I'll teach you the lesson in like seven days and then I forget, right? So, oops, lesson has not been learned, but I don't care, right? Ultimately, we're trying, you know, parents especially have so much urgency. You know, if I don't teach this lesson now, my kid will be a loser, a drug dealer, and get pregnant by 12, right? We're like, no, I have to teach this. Say please right now, right? And we're, say, we're, we're saying say please when they're 22. Can you say please? Because the lesson never gets learned if it's not meant to be learned anyway, right? But we think we have the jewels of wisdom must be said right now. Nothing needs to be said right now. And really mm. nothing. The earth is going to keep moving, even if you don't mm. say your precious words right now, right? So the authentic self mm. is never urgent. Wow. It, wow. It, uh, I, that's really powerful. I'm just, just to feel into that, that because mm. it's so somatic, right? It is really a way that we can, we can ask ourselves, am I really in that place? And we can feel whether we feel like we have to make a movement we have to do the thing or say the thing, or can we just be as you were describing? And allow. That's beautiful. And so it's, and it's calm. So you, so you know, you're in reactivity through the pacing of your, through the burst of the volatility through the, yeah. right. And how do we pause in that moment and go, I'm anxious. I'm anxious. Mm -hmm. And when I'm anxious, I know do not talk when you're anxious mm -hmm. because anxious gets converted. Anxiety gets converted into control. Mm -hmm right? What we are anxious here, but out of our mouth comes control, right? So, you know, I, I have learned in the hard way to, to tap in and go, wow, I'm anxious. I'm anxious. And when I'm anxious, I'm unstable. So I need to go take care of this being, which is me, before I spew out in some sort of toxic, toxic vitriol, onto others mm. who are unsuspecting, right? So it's a tapping in, like mm. you said, mm. you have yeah. to become aware of how your body is speaking to you. Yeah. Yeah, and that urgency, um, it could be sort of that movement, but sometimes urgency actually is a withdrawing, mm. right? To just name that too. It's not always a movement that mm -hmm. is volatile. The withdrawing is also a way that mm -hmm. um, we respond and react. Yeah, I like that. Yep, very yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to something you, we talked about earlier and, and your story about um, the women in your life and the men in your life when you were young. So touching. I actually teared up listening to your experience. And um it that lesson that we learn and, and you really spoke to that beautifully from women that we shouldn't compete with women right or we shouldn't be better than and i know from working in um, corporations with um, mainly with women that one of the most painful places for women sometimes consciously but often not is the competition with other women. It's not the patriarchy. It's not what's happening with the men. It's actually their own competition with each other. And, and I know, you know, you also speak to how women really, we need women to heal the world in this mothering, nurturing way. And unless we have a community of sisterhood and break that, um, we won't be able to do that because we need each other. We need the sisterhood, the support. We need to elevate each other. So what, what do you recommend to women that are listening or men or anyone who's listening? How do we start 
undoing that between women, the competition that women suffer from each other. Yeah, it's it's difficult, but we have to start showing up more and more as ourselves. So either, you know, be more honest about your own experiences, don't pedestalize yourself, don't don't put yourself on this, uh, you know, on this air of superiority, come down to earth, be humble. Uh, you know, if you're all made up and dolled up, you know, say, I don't act like it's how you rolled out of bed, right? Own it, claim <laughs> it, talk about your insecurities, because when you do, other women f- open up and feel relaxed. But if you, mm-hmm. you know, have this air of perfection, that is just such a turnoff. And it really sets off a domino effect in other women yeah. to feel that the, they have the pressure to be perfect, you know. And, um, you know, all women who are trying to be perfect on social media, you know, you see how this makeup transforms them and they need to say, you know, don't think I'm doing this because I'm perfect. I'm doing this because I'm insecure. And if they call it what it is, then do what you want, but don't pretend like you, you know, woke up like this, say I'm so insecure and I'm suffering from this, but I'm working hard on loving myself. And so till then I have to plaster myself with a lot of paint right? Rather than just showing up as the paint, painted doll version, and everyone's going, wow, how do I look like that? You know, we don't see the behind the scenes. And it could be with your motherhood, Mm -hmm. it could be with your partnership. How many women talk about, you know, my sex with my husband sucks, you know, or, you know, I'm sick of being a mom, and I'm tired, and I don't know what I'm doing. So when we begin to talk like this, we give each other permission to be real. Mm-hmm. being authentic mm-hmm. you um one of the the most powerful for me personally moments in the book was um you said the true self can't be wounded just our ego and we can heal and parent the part that hasn't been parented in the way you wanted yeah. i just i feel like that is that message is so powerful Mm-hmm. It's it's the way that we actually can heal ourselves. Right. right? The, and true, that we, the true self yeah. is untainted. It's untarnished. It's uh, unbroken. It's the conditioned self that we have been made to believe we are. Uh, that is completely fragile. The true self is our immutable, uh, eternal, limitless, uh, melting with the cosmic self that self, which has no border, boundary, identification, religion, it just is the I am self, the we are self, all the rest, the I'm, I'm you know, a, a girl, or I'm a, a, an Indian girl, or I'm an author, or I'm Jewish, or I'm Muslim, those are the cultural identifications that are lies. And that's why we have religious war, because if I came to you and said, I don't like, you know, whatever the religion is, X. And you're like, that's my religion. You don't like it. I don't like you. It's our conditioned self that identifies with its identifications that is fragile. The the true self is never broken. The, The conditioned self that believes it needs to be skinny or young or Jewish or Muslim or rich, that when that that self is attacked, it falls apart. The true self can never fall apart because it doesn't hold on to any identification. So you can't poke it. The true self cannot be wounded. Mm-hmm. It's, such, it's so powerful if we take that in, that reality that is available to us. And I'm wondering, um, what are your what are your final thoughts that you would like to share with everyone? Just that, you know, life is uh, only lived in the now. and any of your internal talk that's based in lack and shame and fear uh, is a lie based on uh, your ego and culture's ego and your parents' ego. And therefore, you don't have to any longer buy into it. You can literally discard all those thoughts and self-criticisms and Mm self-loathings as soon as you wake up to your own authentic self. And that is Dr. Shafali giving us permission to do that and inviting us to do that. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Shafali. It was really um, so enlightening to listen to you and um, to be with you today. Thank you for being a fabulous interviewer. And thank you to CIS for hosting and uh, to all who listened. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.